In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 22 of Paw and Order. I'm Peter Sankoff here with my co-host, Camille Lapchuk. Hey, Peter. How's it going? Going well, Camille. Going well. We are back in business after, boy, uh, our first technical stumble, Camille. I don't know who to blame. I'm, I'm going to suggest that some... I can't blame Bob Sopak, can I? I, I want to blame somebody came in and tinkered with our technical stuff and, and just, you know, made it go awry. We lost 10 minutes of our show, Camille. That's 10 minutes of gold. I know. It was really sad. Uh, we, when we listened to the episode and realized that your audio was kind of messed up, it was, it was a very sad moment. And then the worst part, I shouldn't say the worst part, because for you, it's kind of a good part, is that you were in Mexico when we couldn't even re-record while you were gone. Yeah. So it was like, it's funny that we've done 22 of these episodes. Um, we have never had a technical glitch. Isn't that correct? Like never. And it's like, essentially what happens is the one time that I like, literally we recorded, we dropped everything on Shannon and I take off in a plane. That's the episode where we have a mysterious technological glitch. Yeah. Well, I hope your trip to Mexico was worth it, Peter, for messing up with our podcast schedule. Yeah, well, the good news is, the way I see it, the good news is that um, we get two episodes this week. Like, we are recording this, and our listeners are just beginning to to listen to all the awesome stuff, um, you know, including our interview with Jessica Eisen, and suddenly, like, by the end of this week, they're getting another episode. So it's it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty cool. So a double episode week for you guys. Um, don't expect that pace to keep up. We're going to try to Ever. stick to our every two weeks. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Ever. <laughs> so how was how was your trip, Peter? Well, I had a trip in Mexico. It was hard work, Camille. I mean, it was hard. It's 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 hard to get out of the pool, and uh, I had to drag myself away from the beach. And I'll be honest, you know, I my elbow got strained. It was a lot of lifting the the pina colada up to my lips and back down again. So it was hard work, Camille. Hard work. Wow. Well, I'm I'm not going to feel too bad for you, but welcome home. It is good to have you back. <laughs> it was nice to get a week of R and R. The less I say about the food, the better. But uh, luckily, alcohol, Camille, remains mostly largely vegan. So we were okay uh, on that front, and we were able to relax and enjoy the liquid refreshment part of the Mexican vacation. Well, sounds like quite the party. Yeah. And uh, how has your week been? I just got back from the National Center for the Prosecution of Animal Cruelty Conference in Banff, Alberta, which was a really cool time, actually. Uh, it's a two-day conference. I think in the past years, they've just done one day, so this was kind of extended. And I spoke about our our Bogarts case, which listeners might remember is the constitutional challenge in Ontario to the animal protection laws here and the way that they're enforced. So that was pretty cool. Uh, in case anyone's interested in knowing, we actually got an email from 
the judge in the Bogarts case, saying that we can expect a decision on judgment um, on or before January 14th, which is interesting because I don't know about you, Peter, but I've never received like notice from the courts before that the decision will come down like that far in advance. They were apologetic. It was, it was kind of weird. It's not uncommon in a significant case like that um, to get word. It's becoming more and more common for the judge to advise that uh, a decision is coming down. And it allows you to plan, to be perfectly honest with every aspect of what you want to do. And it's certainly, um, since I suspect that there's a reasonable chance of an appeal in this case, um, regardless of how it's decided, I, I think that also allows parties to start getting their ducks in a row, uh, you know, to use the animal expression, um, in terms of getting an appeal ready, because your your time to appeal is really short. You only have like 30 days to sort of decide if you want to appeal. Mm. Well, at any rate, it was an interesting uh, email to get. And I kind of wish the decision had been out before I was there talking about the case, but it was still a good discussion. Uh, I was a little worried about it because the position that we took in that case is that I guess we were critical of the private enforcement of animal protection laws. And in the room were a lot of people from SPCAs who were engaged in that type of enforcement. But Overall, I think it was a good discussion and people were interested in the transparency and accountability mechanisms that we think should be in law enforcement. But Peter, the coolest part of the trip was actually not in Banff. It was my visit to the Grinning Goat, our podcast sponsor, while I was in Calgary. Sponsored by the Grinning Goat, where you can get an exclusive discount code since you're a Paw and Order listener. Sorry, Camille, go ahead. Well, that's right. So I stopped by the Grin and Goat and I saw the wonderful gals who run the store. And I was with my dad, actually, because he lives in Calgary and he actually decided to buy me a pair of winter boots. So I walked out of the store with new boots, which is always fun, especially when you live in Ottawa like I do. And it's always freezing. But the Grin and Goat, of course, is our podcast sponsor, the first one ever. And they're Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They've got this storefront in Calgary that's fabulous and has tons of shoes and clothing and other gifts and other items items, jackets, outerwear, but they also ship countrywide. And Peter, I know you already have a pair of their boots. Now I do too. Actually, I've got two pairs at this point. Uh, and I just love almost everything that they stock. They are kind enough to give an exclusive discount code for PAW and order listeners. So if you're listening right now, you can use the code PAW, P-A-W-15, for 15% off at checkout. And you can find them online at grinninggoat.ca. Or if you happen to be in Calgary, you can stop by their storefront on 17th uh, Ave in the South. Yes, absolutely. I am uh, placing an order very shortly. I already mentioned I've decided that I am going to load up on socks. They have beautiful socks, actually. This amazing sock line that has no uh, animal products in it. And I'm really excited about uh, that amongst uh, some other items on my Christmas shopping list. But I will just repeat... Pawn order listeners, we ask you to do so little. So um, we are asking you today to go and visit the Gringo website. That's really what we need. If you support our sponsors, that supports us in the long run in every way. And we'd really appreciate it. I met with Crystal yesterday. Crystal is the owner of the Grinning Goat. And she's just fantastic. She's supporting us in a number of different ways, including she was dropping off a donation for our Edmonton holiday party. Um, and uh, it was great to meet Crystal and talk about the story and talk about how it's going. She says it's going great. Well, we want it to go better, don't we, Camille? That's right. We want everyone to be wearing vegan boots all over Calgary and all over the country. Fantastic. All right. Well, that is what's going on. Well, Camille, before we get to our next matter, I should tell you, um, 
I had a little surprise. This is not going to be a surprise to you, Camille, because I already, I think I put it on Twitter or Facebook or on text. I can't remember which it was. So Camille already knows this. But I have to tell you that um, I was eating at um, another one of our, our friendly uh, sponsors of the Edmonton Holiday Party, this, the amazing uh, Sweet Pea Cafe in Edmonton, which is really um, one of Canada's best cafes. It's absolutely fantastic, fully vegan, and they're just some wonderful people. And um, I was sitting there talking with my wife and family when uh, this woman who I didn't know and had never seen before sort of looks up at me like quizzically and says, are you Peter Sankoff from Pawn Order? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You got voice recognized. It wasn't I even got, your face. I got voice recognized. That was like the coolest thing ever. And by the way, listeners, if you're ever wondering, if you actually like run into us like anywhere and are wondering, should I say hello and tell them I listened to Pawn Order? Like, don't wonder. Like, this is like the most exciting. We're so needy in our in our in our quest for approval. Like, am I right, Camille? Like, we we we'll be happy to talk to anybody, and I'm always delighted whenever anybody brings up on order. Oh, totally! It just makes my my day, my week, my month. It's amazing. So please come chat if you ever see us about. Absolutely. But just remember, if it's Camille, if it's not me, but if it's Camille, you have to ask her if she's the award-winning Camille Lapchuk, because that will really make her day. Well, maybe someday you'll get an award too, and I can actually say that about you. I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't think I'm up for any awards, except for most annoying co-host. For that, I'm, I'm like a runaway winner. Gold medalist. Gold medalist. So Camille, on top of that, it is Oh my God, is it holiday party season? It is holiday party season. If you are listening to this and not in line to come to one of our holiday parties, well, I'm, I'm hoping you don't live in Edmonton, Vancouver, Toronto, or Ottawa, because it's holiday party season, Camille. It sure is, and we are getting right into it really soon. The first party is November 29th. That's Thursday, November 29th in Edmonton, Peter, and I can't wait to be out there with you for this party. Shannon Milling, our producer, is coming as well. It's going to be a full Paul and Order team there and some fun stuff planned for everyone, some drinks, some appetizers, and of course, a really cool video about our 2018 and all the work we did together. The next night, we're all headed to Vancouver to repeat the party. So November, Friday, November 30th in Vancouver, we're headed back to Ontario after that. So December 7th in Toronto. And we're wrapping up the party season with a party in Ottawa on December 14th. So we're going to post links to all of these parties in the show notes. If you want to join us for one or even two or three, you can come to all of them if you want. Please RSVP because we would love to see you. Yes, please RSVP. I'm an RSVP nut. If I don't see RSVPs, I think no one's coming. It's like trauma from my childhood when I had parties and like I was worried people wouldn't show up. So RSVP <laughs> or you're going to cause the pawn order team to have heart attacks. We're, we're very excited about the parties. I'm going to two of them and uh, can't wait. Really, these are usually really fun affairs. I can't wait to see the video. Camille, how's the video going? Oh, it's always an effort, but it, it's actually really fun to, to look back. <laughs> and reflect on all the clips of all the cool stuff that Animal Justice and our supporters have done this year. <laughs> when I Camille says it's an effort, that means it's it's in production is where we're at. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we have some work to do. 
It always it always comes together. But I do these things, and of course, I'm heavily involved with the Edmonton party. And it's amazing that no matter how much pre-planning you do, and there's a lot. And shout out to my my co-party planner, Victoria Kubinski, who's doing some great work in uh, Edmonton to get the party together. Um, it, it's no matter how much you plan, there's just like the last week is just hell. Like you're just running around. It all sort of comes together, you know. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And the parties are all going to be great. But I've got to say, Peter, I'm really looking forward to December 15th when they're all when it's all over. And I can sleep again. You and me both, Camille. You and me both. Fantastic. Well, we've got some. The good news is Pawn Order will be coming to these parties, literally, to a certain extent. I know that Camille and I are scheduled to do the next Pawn Order, uh, recording it on the morning of November 30th. So we'll have just finished the Edmonton party and we'll be on our way to Vancouver. So we will be doing a first party recap uh, in which we talk about the party. So we're very excited about that, too. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. All right, Peter, so we've got a bunch of news to catch up on. Lots of stuff has been happening, as usual. The first piece I want to talk about is this stunning front page of the Globe and Mail piece on Saturday about research monkeys and uh, ones in Canada, three in particular, that were retired to Storybook Firm, which is a primate sanctuary a couple hours outside of, of Toronto. Did you get a chance to look at that piece? I, I, I got to say I didn't because I was away when this all went down. So I did not look at it as closely as I'd like. But I, I followed since and I've, I've followed most closely uh, Jessica uh, Reed's uh, op-ed that sort of talks about this in uh, greater depth. Well, the piece itself, I'll just give a little recap for listeners. And again, go to the show notes. We're going to post a link to it. But it, it talks about three monkeys who were formerly used in laboratories who were able to be transferred to Storybook Firm Primate Sanctuary after their usefulness was over to the lab experimenters. Uh, the piece is, is very well researched. It's long form. It talks about some of the legal issues facing research animals in Canada. Uh, one interesting thing is, is it brings out the sort of legal limbo that monkeys who are quote unquote retired from research face at that point. There's no CFI regulations allowing them to be transported or transferred anywhere else except a lab. So to even get these three monkeys out of a lab and into a sanctuary, there had to be, it seems to me, extensive negotiations with the CFIA and eventually some sort of regime, some sort of temporary regime that they came up with. But what was stunning to me, Peter, was some of the horrible details about what they endured and the long-lasting psychological effects. So uh, if you approach the cages in a certain way, they will feel threatened because they may be fearful that um, they're coming to have blood taken or being taken over to a new experiment or something else horrible. There was one instance where I think a FedEx truck or a delivery truck showed up on the property and they all just started losing it and freaking out. And yeah, we can only speculate about what it is in their past that must have caused that kind of intense fear today. But it is an interesting snapshot at the psychological trauma that um, their lives have left them with. Yeah, I have no doubt that uh, research testing on animals is going to be a topic of its own on a future show. Um, there is no doubt that uh, primates, who are one of the primary animals uh, in research and testing for a variety of things from uh, obviously uh, um, um, designing and testing medicines and all sorts of other uh, experimental behavioral studies, we do a lot 
to monkeys, and most of it's not very good. And the monkeys uh, that are kept in uh, uh, captivity for testing are forced to undergo all sorts of horrors that most of us could never imagine. And uh, I, I think there are, are numerous levels to the story. I mean, there's the there is the primary question of whether we should be testing on animals um, at all, and that ties in nicely to the story we reported on last podcast with the you know one million dollar gift being given to the Center for Alternative Research Methods and Testing. Um, and that is a very complex question about whether animals should be in, in testing at all. And, and we think there's very good reason to say no. Very good reason. And, uh, you know, the other thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is just that this testing is going on in the first place, because I think we've discussed this before, Peter, but if this is news to anyone, the animals used for research regime is characterized by extreme secrecy. Very, very difficult to get any information about what's happening. Um, difficult to know what kind of tests are being done on animals. We do sort of have aggregate numbers of uh, animals being used in different situations. And uh, sort of a rough estimate is that there's probably about 6,400 other monkeys being used in labs right now who are probably not going to be, quote unquote, retired from uh, their, uh, you know, horror and torture filled life, essentially. And that's one of the things that Jessica Scott Reed, our good friend of the podcast, has, has talked about in this Globe and Mail piece that she wrote. Yeah, and I think it's very powerful. I think that that gets into the second part of the equation. And, and I do think the two questions are distinct to a certain extent. I mean, you, you, ha you start with the first question of whether or not we should be experimenting at all. And we can say no, but the answer currently under law and in practical reality is yes. Okay, so then Jessica poses a second question. Well, what if we said we want to value their lives more than we currently do? Because right now the monkeys are treated as nothing. They're treated as an expenditure. And, and I probably shouldn't say like nothing. There are rules and regulations to a certain extent detailing the way in which these types of studies are approved and the way in which the animals have to be treated when they're there. We could talk about the various loopholes that exist in those uh, legal regimes, but let's just assume for the moment that those exist. Then we move to the second stage and we say, well, what if we made it mandatory to care more for these animals after the fact, if we actually built that into the testing process? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a conversation that's maybe going to start happening now. I know it increasingly is in laboratories, especially ones that use primates because of people's special affinity for primates uh, in particular because of their proximity to us. And that, that quote or that concept, Peter, always comes to mind when we're talking about animals being used for testing, that we justify testing on them and say that we need to because they're so much like us that we can learn something. Yet at the same time, we're using their similarity as a way to, to justify inflicting horrible pain when you'd think maybe because they're so much like us and we have sympathy for people of our own species, maybe we should consider that and not test on them for that reason. Well, that's, yeah, part of the testing. But as you point out, you know, that's the testing question. And you're right. That is, of course, the argument against non-testing. But then if we, what, what's ironic is we use that similarity towards us or to us as a reason to do the testing. But then we, we ignore that similarity towards us in terms of considering our obligations to the animals once we do that testing. And I just want to read a little bit from Jess, Jess's article that I thought was so, this was really a powerful uh, part of it, which I think is really important. Important. And this gets into my hobby horse. Uh-oh. Ah! Sorry, I almost got trampled there. 
<laughs> um, my hobby horse. You have your hobby horse, uh, Camille, of political, you know, whatever it is you like to call it. I, I was going to say political nonsense, but that wouldn't be fair. Um, <laughs> and I have my hobby horse of leveraging small ideas into bigger ideas, of sort of like leveraging things that, that transform the way we think about animals. Those, to me, are very powerful. It may not sound big, but listen, here's what Jess wrote. But consider what would happen if changes were made requiring all lab monkeys be sent to sanctuaries after their duties were done. Their existence would gain much more ethical importance, transforming them from being mere replaceable lab tools to beings with the right to live. Of course, it would be a costly and difficult endeavor, but don't they deserve it? And maybe, just maybe, including mandatory aftercare provisions and overall research budgets might just add some extra incentive to find another way to conduct the research. And I think that's very powerful. That's the type of change I would like to see. That's one of those incremental changes that I think has hidden benefit we don't actually see. On one hand, you can say, well, what, what, who cares if we're going to, you know, put, it, put them in sanctuaries? We've done the damage, right? We've tested them. That is the real evil. Don't be fighting for sanctuaries. But I think that opponents of that sort who are focused on let's abolish all testing are missing the point because what seems to me is that if you do what Jess suggests, you are creating barriers to testing in the first place because the costs of those sanctuaries are not cheap. And that creates added ethical importance to the animals and creates a way of letting us rethink or forcing experimenters to rethink what it is they're doing. So I think it's very powerful. I agree with all of that, Peter, completely. I think that one of the tools we have as animal advocates is to drive up the cost of doing these procedures and make them more complex and complicated for researchers, for other people using animals, and parlay that into pushing for change for efficiency reasons. Uh, another thing that occurs to me, Peter, is that if there are sanctuaries for these retired research monkeys, people will have an opportunity to actually see them and actually meet them and learn more about what they do endure. And that is something that can also drive down support for animal research in the first place. Yeah, totally agree on both points. I think that's really, really useful stuff to think about. And, and again, I just think it's always uh, um, um, powerful when you can create these indirect disincentives to the thing you're actually trying to get away. And what I like about this one, Camille, is it's so reasonable, right? It's such a reasonable sounding thing. Well, let's just give these monkeys, you know, what they deserve. We've, we've used them in a particular way. So let's give them the sort of treatment after the fact they deserve. It's, it, it sounds reasonable. What are you supposed to do? Just discard them with the garbage? No, of course not. Give them the, the life they deserve after the fact. We'll set up these sanctuaries. And in reality, what that does is create whole new levels of conversations and, of course, uh, impediments to the industry to doing what they're doing. Totally. And as, as we discussed on this podcast before, discourse is a critical part of social change. Just having that discussion and making it part of our conversation is, is something that we need if we're ever going to get legal change. No question. Maybe somebody should start up a podcast where they talk about these. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry. Okay, let's let's keep let's keep going with our next uh, uh, conversation. This is involving uh, our friend uh, Jenny McQueen, who is an open rescue activist who is uh, facing breaking and entering charges for. I don't know. What did she do, uh, Camille? She she exposed some. No, no, no. Didn't just expose some cruelty. She she broke and entered. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just terrible, terrible thing that she did. Rescue two piglets from a horrific factory farm situation. Can you imagine what a horrible person she must be to care so much about animals to rescue them? Horrible, horrible. Horrible. So Jenny is facing a break in her charge and perhaps other charges I can't recall right now. But 
in relation to something called an open rescue, which is a, a way of going into a situation where animals are being abused, not hiding one's face, being open about the fact that those animals are being removed and taken to sanctuary, and just going for it. So Jenny is uh, facing these charges in relation to a pig farm. She attended at a pig farm. She found one mother pig with, uh, well, they found, I think, a lot of terrible conditions on that farm. But the one thing that stood out in particular was that a mother pig had a prolapse, very painful condition where essentially in innards of an animal are protruding from their body. Pregnant mother pig, there was a good chance that they were going to uh, just keep her alive essentially with that painful condition until she birthed or was able to have the baby sliced out of her and would then be killed all the while in agony. So Jenny apparently took one of the piglets uh, to a situation of safety and is now facing charges. Now, I always feel in these sorts of situations, this, these, I don't want to say tricky. Tricky is not the, the right word for how they make me feel. But, but I, I should point out a couple of things, Camille. We're both lawyers. And uh, I believe as lawyers, we have sort of an obligation not to encourage people to break the law. And, and don't worry, there's like a big but coming here. Is that, that sort of where we should start? Sure. Yeah, of course. We, we have a lot of respect for the law and the rule of law and its role in society. But... Oh, there's the but. Yes, there is a but. Go ahead, Camille. You finish the first part of the but. I'll come in after. But it's also our obligation as lawyers to point out when the law is unjust and when the law treats animals differently from uh, other vulnerable individuals. I mean, if you swapped out baby pigs, and I'm looking at another piece by Jessica Scott Reed, who's just been on a roll lately, but she says, if you swapped out baby pigs for other vulnerable beings like children, the elderly, our beloved pets, the discussion about this goes down a drastically different path. And I'm looking at yeah. a piece that she wrote in the Toronto Star. Of course, Peter, anyone would consider that it's right and even lawful and socially obligatory to get a child or a dog being blatantly abused before our eyes out of that situation. But a lot of people don't feel the same way about pigs, and certainly our law, or our law enforcement in this case, does not. I, I, I totally agree. And, and that's, that's where I've always come down on this stuff is the idea, first of all, I think there is room and this case may be the vehicle to develop some sort of common law exception surrounding animal uh, animals in need, although I, I think it'll be difficult jurisprudentially to chart that course. But, but I've always believed that there are times at which, you know, uh, there is a long history of civil disobedience and sort of reaching in and recognizing that the situation and the status quo is simply unjust. It is not, you know, what we've we've talked about on this uh, a podcast before is the idea that restrictions, to the extent they exist at all, uh, on farms are simply not enforced or investigated in any significant way. And I think what Jenny and others are trying to do is bring light to that fact. And I think they're performing a valuable public service that's in the best tradition of, of, of other activists throughout history. And I think, frankly, to just harp back on the idea that the law prohibits them from doing it is sort of a, it doesn't take you anywhere at all. There are situations in which the law, the way it's enforced, the way it's structured, uh, is completely unfair to the individuals, and I include the animals, obviously, in this case, that are governed by it. And I think at these times, you have to take extreme measures. And what, what's interesting about Jenny's stuff is she's not breaking in and spray painting. She's not destroying property. She's not doing any of those things. She's not trying to, to, you know, let all the animals out. She's trying to rescue animals that are harmed for the purposes of showing what is going on in those farms. That's right. And she's doing something really important, which is exposing this arbitrary uh, contradiction in our laws that simply doesn't make sense anymore. And it reinforces the idea 
that our laws need to change to catch up with our social attitudes. Our laws still consider pigs on this farm to be property. That's not how people are increasingly seeing animals. That's not how we think of them. We think of them as sentient individuals, often as members of our families. And even though I know most people still treat dogs very differently from other animals, those attitudes are changing. And the criminal law is, is often used just to enforce the status quo. But sometimes a case like this comes along that gives us the opportunity to point out that the status quo is changing and the law might have to change along with it. Absolutely. All right, Camille. Um this is a very timely piece that we're about to discuss, and I say it's timely because I think it gets us off the hook from part of the technical malfunction that went down last week, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a shame because we had this great chat last week, Peter, that was was totally garbled about this idea that the Ontario SPCA has uh, announced to some of its inspectors that it wants to pull out of doing animal cruelty investigations around farmed animals and also horses. So as you can imagine, Peter, this has prompted a ton of discussion, people very concerned about what will fill the void. And uh, there's been more writing about this in the media since. Yeah, it's been, I, I, I feel bad because I, I remember that discussion. I remember we were making what, sound, what might sound like controversial points, I believe, to sum it all up, our reaction to the OSPCA is pulling out. Um, I think our reaction was good. Like, I think that's good. We need a change, uh, and the status quo is just not working. And we need to start thinking about whether or not we as a society really want to take care and really want to address uh, people who, who cause harm to animals. I, I must confess, Camille, that part of me is worried that the answer will be that we don't. It's a, yeah, it's a really tricky situation right now, especially given the political context. But just so everyone understands some of the reasons that we think this might be actually a positive move, we have been concerned for quite some time and spoken about it, of course, on the podcast that uh, the government is using the OSPCA essentially as cover to avoid doing something itself about animal law enforcement. So it gives a minimal amount of money to the OSPCA as a private charity that's about less than $6 million a year. And with that money, part of which they devote to enforcement, they're somehow supposed to enforce all the animal cruelty laws in the entire province, which of course is just an absolute absurdity. Of course, Camille, we should point out, we should point out that in most other jurisdictions, the government expects the same thing, but actually doesn't give any money at all to those charities. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that is important to point out. The OSPCA is not by any means an outlier. In fact, they might be a bit of an outlier in that they actually get some reasonable funding, but um, reasonable. Some unreasonable. Word. Some some, some unreasonable, unreasonable funding. funding. <laughs> yeah. Couple pennies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, the, the discussions that we have been having are that this has prompted much needed public chatter about the role of the SPCA and whether it's okay to expect them to somehow cover every single animal in Ontario with the money that they do have. Absolutely. In fact, you know, what we were talking about earlier today about the Bogarts case, you know, again, my view is that discourse and discussion around important public issues involving animals needs to happen. And sometimes the only way for that to happen is for a seismic event of this sort where the OSPCA says we're not doing it anymore because we just can't do it effectively. We can't do what you are trying to ask us to do. And it's unfair for you to ask us to do that. And as a result, we need to throw the ball back into the court of the Ontario government and say, look, either you care about animals or you don't. And if you don't, well, we're going to get a government in place that actually does. 
Yeah, yeah, there needs to be a political solution to this. So uh, the the piece we want to talk about is, is by Dr. Kendra Coulter, who's a professor at Brock University. Kendra has studied the OSPCA. She's done interesting research on the really poor conditions its officers are forced to work in because of lack of funding, sometimes unsafe conditions, uh, attending at places where they're not sure if there's a firearm present because they don't have access to police databases on that. They don't have appropriate facilities, resources. And Kendra is taking this move and saying, look, it's time for the government to step in here and laying out a few, uh, a couple different approaches that they could consider in the future. So I'm just going to mention these ones here in case anyone's interested. But a lot of people have talked about moving animal law enforcement officers over to the Ontario Provincial Police. So having a special unit. Uh, relying on the expertise that those agents have built up over years, but housing them within the police, a public police agency, which uh, should have more resources. So that's number one. I I like that idea. I just should say that, you know, one of the impediments to all these things is, of course, the cost. I mean, the cost is enormous. Like we're talking about uh, vastly increasing the, uh, you know, the extent of resources that are currently required. I I should say public resources that are currently required to deal with animal uh, cruelty investigations. Yeah, and let's keep in mind that Ontario has a progressive conservative government at the moment. I know that they've been doing a lot of cost cutting. They've eliminated the environment commissioner position. They eliminated a children and youth advocate position recently. So I'm not sure where they would be on this issue and whether they would step up and want to devote those those funds to public enforcement of animal cruelty laws. So that's another fundamental issue here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, th- th- there are there are various options, and and Kendra points out a couple of others, including uh, local police creating local animal crime units. I have to say, I'm much less enthusiastic about that myself, but uh, except in Toronto, per se, where you have a much bigger unit. But I'm I'm just worried about the sizes of the the enforcement units in local communities. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, another option she mentions is partnerships between police and OSPCA or humane societies. And she writes about an interesting model in the States where the American SPCA used to be responsible for enforcement. And they've now handed this over to the NYPD in in New York City, but act as a collaborator. So they do training, they do 24-7 support for the ASPCA's law enforcement liaison team. And uh, each police precinct actually now has its own animal liaison as well. So there's interesting partnerships that could keep that expertise that the SPCA has built up over time while moving a lot of these functions and investigations into the public domain. Yep. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we talked about something along these lines in the podcast. We are in interesting times. There is no doubt about it that for the first time um, in my close to 20 years of doing this, there seems to be a change in the air. And the, the reason that change is so important is we're just sort of realizing that the status quo just doesn't cut it anymore. We're not, I, I feel, I, I think you feel the same way, Camille, that we're not entirely sure where it's going. We don't know what the next step is. And it may, it may, who knows, it may be a step back. I hope not. But, but, but I, I feel that there is definitely change in the air. And the idea is, in Kendra's piece, is that we should start studying what that change is going to look like. But we can't just shy away from it and say, let's just keep doing it the way we're doing it, because not working. No, no, that's for sure. All right, Peter. Well, I think that wraps up our news. So why don't we move now into our exciting main segment? Now, I understand that we've got a very special interview for guests today. This is something that you recorded 
a few weeks ago now at the Animal Law Conference in Chicago. Oh, you and I were both down there. And so pleased that you had a chance to sit down with Chris Green, who's the director of the Harvard Animal Law Program. And Chris has a lot of thoughts and things to say about the future of this field and where it's going. So let's tune in. All right. I am here with Chris Green. Rather than try and fail to get his title correct, well, I can see what it is, but I don't know what his title is. I'm going to let Chris introduce himself. Chris, nice to be with you. Thanks. Uh, I'm the executive director of Harvard's Animal Law and Policy Program. Fantastic. So, Chris, can you tell me a little bit about, I'm curious about uh, how the program came to exist in Harvard and how you came to play a role in it? Yeah. So, uh, Professor Christian Stilt was at Northwestern and she was being recruited to uh, join the Harvard faculty. And uh, one of the things she was uh, uh, very much wanted to do was to teach an animal law course. So as part of her negotiation, when she was joining faculty, said, propose that. And the dean was like, that'd be fantastic. Um, so, you know, I think Harvard was only the ninth school to teach animal law when I took it there back in 2000. Uh, now there's, I think, 167 schools that have taught it. But the vast majority of those courses are taught by adjunct practitioners, which is great because they have all the latest knowledge from the trenches of what's going on in the field. But as adjuncts, you don't really have access to sort of institutional resources to do, you know, hold workshops and things like that. Um, so here, not only did you have a tenured faculty member teaching animal law, but at a top five school. So uh, David Wilson saw what an opportunity that was, and he went out and found the funding to sort of set up a, dep- like a department around her. Um, and then when they were looking for someone to come handle the administrative side of that, they you know put out applications, and I was an alum and had worked in the field, so it just worked out like a, it seemed to be a really good match. I'm going to step back a bit because I realize you said all that, and the word Bob Barker never came up, and I thought that might be a good place to go back and just talk about it because for our listeners, um, I'm of an older vintage, even older than you, and uh, the Bob Barker... The Bob Barker professorships were a big deal back in the day. So maybe you could tell our listeners a bit about those and what influence they had in growing animal law in, in the U.S. Well, I have a question on the vintage question, but we can figure that out later. If you were at Harvard in 2000, you might have been enrolled in here. That was after taking six years off, though. I did my first year in 92. So it sounds like we're about the same. I, uh, Ted Cruz was in my uh, first year of law school class. We're, we're about the same. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. Uh, we can compare who's older, you know, later on. <laughs> um so when I was just, so I, I had actually, I did my first year of law school and took, I went there to do environmental law and was kind of disenchanted. So I took six years off to do music industry work. And then during the interim, I decided I actually wanted to go back to my original passion, which was to be a veterinarian. Um, and then the dean of students called me up and said, hey, it's been six years. You know, what's going on? I said, well, I'm going to go to vet school instead. And she was, she said, well, we've got this guy, Steve Wise, to come teach us an animal law course for the first time. So I looked into it and basically went back to law school to take that course. And um, she's like, it's literally like front page news in the New York Times, which it was. Um, and as a result of that attention, Bob Barker, ears got pricked up. And so while I was a student there, he gave uh, half a million dollars to sort of um, ensure that, that the animal law course would always be taught. Like the only uh, restriction he put on the money that they always have to teach an animal law course at least every other year. Um and so that school flew me back for like the sort of ceremony where he met with the dean and sort of gave the check or whatever. And then we all went to the Harvard Faculty Club and ate veggie burgers together. It was pretty, pretty funny. But uh, it was great because it embedded it there. Um, and he then, Bob Barker, I think, then gave money to seven other law schools. Uh, I think he gave million dollar endowments. And the thing is, he set these up as endowments. So while well, a million dollars, and he later raised Harvard's money. Um, but 
uh, well, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money. If you do it as an endowment, that only kicks off about $60,000 a year. So what a lot of those schools did was just basically take that money and use it to pay the adjunct who's already teaching the course. And like, there was sort of a, not that much of a net change, but at least in Harvard's case, it was really, um, great foresight that, that Barker had to do that because in the interim, we had a Dean that was not as supportive of animal law and it could have easily have gone away forever. Um, had he not had this guarantee and he actually offered to double the money, I think at one point, and this dean said no, uh, to offer the course every year, and this dean said no. So I think it was, and then we had, after that, we had Martha Menow, who was just as supportive as one could, could get. Uh, she's been vegetarian since the Vietnam War, converted her parents to vegetarianism, which is like the holy grail of animal advocacy. And, uh, and our current dean, John Manning, is again, super supportive. We're trying to get a clinic launched this next year, and he's been just instrumental in helping make that happen, and super supportive. I always thought that uh, the biggest thing that the Harvard Bob Barker Endowment did, this was back in the day when uh, when people like me were trying to get courses going in places like New Zealand, and there was a lot of skepticism. I think uh, getting Harvard, just the publicity that came out of Harvard was almost bigger than the course itself. Yeah. I mean, Barker said he got a lot of crap for that. I mean, he's at all these you know, shelters and stuff that are scraping by, and like Harvard's, I think, like, got the second largest endowment of any nonprofit other than a Catholic church. So it's literally like the only one with more money than Harvard has got, like literally. Um, but he, uh, he said, you know, all these shelters, like, what the hell are you doing? Give money to them. They're so loaded as it is. But he said exactly that. He's like, I could give that to shelters and they'd burn through that money in five years on like cat litter and dog food. And there'd be nothing, nothing cha would change. Whereas here, like literally it's in front page news in New York times. So it was really smart of him. He, and I, I talked to him frequently and, uh, he still says to this day that, uh, you know, giving money to the law schools was the single best idea he ever had. It, to be perfectly honest, not, you know, now we're sidetracking. I want to get back to Harvard, but nothing drives me more crazy than that. It's very hard in Canada to get money away from shelters. It's like the shelters dominate the field. They get all the money and trying to get money. I mean, we're slowly starting to raise more money. They're starting to see that there are other ways to do things. But it's amazing how if you looked at the money that's given to shelters versus advocacy organizations, it's like it's got to be 95 to 5. It's just unbelievable. And guys like Barker had the foresight to recognize that that's the way you actually make real changes unfortunately that it doesn't pay off as it's not as immediately gratuitous you know it doesn't make you feel better but it's a big thing and one thing we're seeing too is that like there's actually been quite a bit of success in the sheltering world where they're really reducing euthanasia euthanasia rates and stuff so you actually see a lot of these spcas are starting to morph into more doing more advocacy work like the mspca in boston is actually you know long had a, a really strong advocacy wing uh carol holmquist runs it um and actually mspca was founded by a guy george thorndike angel who was a harvard law graduate in 1850 uh and so he was considered one of the sort of architects of the modern animal protection movement and sort of like a, a kind of the, the the massachusetts version of henry berg and sort of got this ma major uh um animal protection legislation passed in like the 1860s and stuff. It was really cool and also was super deep into humane education like i don't know if you know that about bands of mercy so there was this group of like human education clubs in Britain that um, that Thorndike Angel decided to sort of replicate over here, and uh, so he started these like humane education clubs. And I think in the like the late 1800s there was something like 82,000 chapters of these. Uh, there's pretty much I mean there's only like 19,000 incorporated towns in the U.S. So that's like one in every single school. And they had a convention in like 1908 in Kansas City where they had 25,000 students show up. There's like humane education convention. I mean it's astounding. 
Wow, something we could use now. Um, okay, so let's get back to Harvard. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, when did you join up, and uh, what, what, what was your role? Yeah, so I had been I was serving as ALDF's legislative director prior to that, and then um, so uh, I did that for two years, and so I officially started uh, like September first, uh, and that's kind of when we kind of consider the program really getting, getting going. Um, uh, a man named Bradley Goldberg is the one who gave us the initial money and kind of in contrast to, to Barker setting up these endowments where it only kicks off about $60,000 a year, um, similar to what he'd done at NYU with their animal studies minor program, Brad Goldberg said, you know, here's a chunk of change. You have to spend it in five years. So it really forces sort of this rapid growth. And then you actually have a track record to fundraise to sustain. So he's, he's a really smart investor and he's actually a really smart philanthropist in the same way that he kind of jumps in early on things that people like other folks might not see the value of and uh and really gets them jump started to then help help kind of get the ball rolling so that's was sort of the genesis of it. he gave the money in 2014 but then we really officially took off as a, a formal program i think in sort of around the september of 2015 so we're just starting our fourth year and uh yeah it's been amazing so far okay so what's your role in uh, in the center so, uh, Kristen, Professor Kristen Stirl is a faculty director. I'm the executive director. Uh, so, um, but we, we work pretty hand in hand and sort of just decide on kind of everything mutually, um, uh, as far as like the direction and, and how we want to grow. And so we, we've, there's kind of three legs of the stool as I see it to our mission. One is we're school. So, you know, students come first. So increasing educational opportunities for students. So we've already added, Kristen teaches a, an animal law course every spring. Uh, which is now every year. Um, and then in the fall, we added both a, a wildlife law course and a farmed animal law and policy course. So we sort of have been alternating those in the fall. So there's two animal law courses taught every year. Um, and then students, Kristen also oversees students doing a lot of independent study projects. So we have a, a three-week January term. So a lot of students will either go work in an animal protection group um, or they will go overseas and do an independent research project. We had one student go to New Zealand and look at the, the recently passed legislation there. We had another go to South Africa this last year and look at sort of wildlife uh, issues there and poaching. Um, so that that's kind of the first, first avenue of it. The second leg is sort of really trying to increase both the quantity and quality of academic scholarship in the field. Um, and the main primary vehicle for that is holding academic workshops. So uh, we'll like pick a topic that we think needs being needs to be addressed. We'll put out a call for papers. People will send us these abstracts, and we'll select from among them, and then fly them all in and get them to sort of beat each other's scholarship up to make it stronger. So on the on the the quantity side, you're you know hey, you know if you write something about this topic, you get a you know all expense paid trip to Harvard and, and you know get to work with those other people. That increases the quantity, but then the quality because you have all these smart people in the room who all have to really carefully read each other's work and then you know heavily critique it to make it stronger for publication. Um, and then the third sort of leg of the stool, as I see it, is uh, just having Harvard as this pretty high-profile platform to educate broader communities about these issues. So we hold like conferences, and we just had, we, the first major one we did was on the 50th anniversary of the Animal Welfare Act. Um, and then we've held some other. Uh, we did a, a closed door. We also Harvard name is pretty has this attracted quality, so um, we have really good ability to kind of convene and be kind of a, a neutral turf for things. So this last August, we held a, a closed door sort of confidential roundtable on sort of the, all the regulatory issues around cellular agriculture, clean meat, and all of that. So we had a former secretary of U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We had heads of several companies and uh, several advocates all in a room just trying, trying to kind of hash this out. Wow, that's amazing stuff. That's, uh, that's, that's an incredible little, uh, 
you know, lab to just do all kinds of stuff. So I guess you're always thinking of new things to get going. Trying to, and we're really fortunate in that there's there's a lot of really great research programs already at Harvard. So there's a really good food law and policy clinic. There's a, the Berkman Law Center for Internet and Society, and we can just really see things that they've done and try and find a way to apply them to the animal protection cause. So that idea for that round table comes from the Berkman Center. They do these sort of hackathons where they'll just like throw all these people in a room saying, okay, no one gets out until you all agree on like three different things. And you can have either people that are on opposite sides of the table or on the same side and need to strategize. Uh, we may do a similar one of those on sort of like rights issues, you know, just get a bunch of thinkers in a room to try and kind of see if we can all agree on a sort of central ask or theme. Um, but yeah, and there's just so many really good synergies there too with like the environmental law program and the, the food law and policy clinic. We, we really... You know, there's just been, especially around factory farming, there's just so much great synergies that we can do. So what was the last uh, workshop you did, the academic workshop? I'm curious, what was the last theme? Well, uh, the last, when we had Justin Marceau has written a book, he's an alum of the school and has the only uh, endowed chair in animal law at University of Denver Law School. Um, he's written a book that's going to be pretty provocative because you got, um, so as we heard in one of the talks earlier today, Michelle Welch, prosecutor, it's always been a, a big issue for the animal protection movement to get prosecutors to take cruelty seriously. You know, they would just wouldn't prosecute in the past. So, and there's this big, big push to have, you know, it was, a, it was a huge celebratory moment for the movement when, in 2014, when South Dakota became the final U.S. state to treat animal cruelty as a felony. It seemed as like this big high five moment. Meanwhile, so we're pushing for, you know, increased penalties, more felonies. Meanwhile, the entire rest of the criminal justice movement is going exactly the opposite direction, trying to reduce incarceration and trying to reduce the number of felonies because they have a disproportionate impact on communities of color and, and the poor and things. So, um, so Justin has a kind of foot in both camps and like, wow, there's this really interesting schism. You've got these things going two different directions. So he's written a book uh, called Beyond Cages that kind of looks at, you know, the carceral system and, you know, if this is the right path or if the movement, animal protection movement's at a place where it can kind of maybe alter its course. So... Uh, we did sort of manuscript review workshop for that. So we had different people each take a chapter, a broad spectrum of people from like animal protectionists to like prosecutors to just others just come in and just uh, really kind of, you know, again, heavily critique his book. And it was, it was, there was, you know, no pun intended, fur flying in the room. You know, people were really critical of certain aspects of it. And that, again, it was all just so helpful for him to kind of more deeply think about things and make it stronger for, for publication. Um, but actually now we have a really, for the first time, have actual uh, a kind of critical mass of, of folks really focusing on scholarship, animal law scholarship at, at the law school. So we've got uh, two different LLMs. We've got an SJD student. We've got uh, a visiting scholar. And we've got a, a, vis a person visiting a university from, from Cambridge working on his Ph.D. So uh, and Chris and herself and others. So we actually just started doing an internal uh, workshop series. So we're meeting every other week and everyone will have to like read someone's, you know, the, the piece of work and come prepared to, uh, to provide constructive criticism. Um, and so, yeah, we just did the first one on one of Kristen's pieces. We're doing the next one this Tuesday, uh, with this guy, Raphael Fossil, who's the guy from the University of Cambridge, but it's really good. And we, and we have like that. We have, uh, five of our JDs or six of our JDs, the Saul left board, uh, they were able to sit in on that and participate and just, you know, we have about, I think, 15 to 20 people in the room. And Paul Waldau is in Boston, and he's a you know a deep thinker, so he's participating as well. And it's just, it's really, it's great for everybody because, you know, the person whose work it is, they're getting really good constructive feedback. But everyone else, you know, they're having to read other people's writing and scholarship, and it, it, it may trigger something, you know, give them a little break from thinking about their own thing and also maybe trigger something that may add to it. That just sounds ideal. Sounds like a great incubator for just ideas and getting stuff going. Wow, so that's just tremendous. So uh, my 
new colleague Jess Eisen was out there. What was it like uh, working with Jess? I know she's she causes a lot of trouble. She gets in there and just stirs things up. <laughs> so glad to have have her be able to hand her off to you guys. It's all totally your problem now. Um, no, Jess has been fantastic, and she was a really great bridge between sort of, you know, Chris and I, what we were doing and the students, because, you know, she's the scholar, but she's also still technically a student. So she interacted really well with the, the SOLDEF and um, she was principal in organizing uh, the Animal Law Week one year. Um, and she also uh, organized our, our first major workshop, which was on comparative constitutional animal law. Um, yeah, she was, you know, 100% responsible for, you know, a lot of the, the, the kind of the conceptualization of that and a lot of the actual the sort of scholarship behind it. And then that was part of a project, born out of a project that she and Professor Stote were doing together. Um, yeah, so it's really exciting to see her. It's great for us. To, you know, it's just cool to see people come through and actually, it's always been the rub that there's all these people graduating from law schools who want to do animal law, but there's no jobs for them or positions. And just in the past year, we've had, you know, Jess got this great academic position with you guys. Um, we had uh, one of our fellows, Elon Abril, just get hired as a senior senior regulatory specialist at the Good Food Institute, focusing on like clean meat regulatory issues. And one of our JD students uh, landed one of the PETA litigation fellowships right out of school. So it's great at all these different strata. We have people being able to, to land full-time animal law positions straight out of school. It's kind of, I was talking with somebody earlier today at uh, the conference about one of the great ironies that, uh, and I don't even totally understand it myself, but the the, the Canada, obviously, much smaller country with far fewer law schools. And I, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think I'm far off in saying there are as many full-time faculty members in Canada who teach animal law as a major part or do it as a major part of their scholarship, I think, as the entire U.S. I, I could be wrong. I don't know what the numbers are like in the U.S., but it's not a huge number in the U.S. Yeah, so I think I think we're more. Which is just weird. I mean, there's two at my school. I know that's a bit of an anomaly, but it's a bit weird. Why do you think that is? Why is it so hard to... I mean, I take it one of your goals you didn't mention is to try and break down that door. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, we... It, the, the difficult thing is right when... And that was actually predated me. So that was sort of Kristen's first idea when, with the program was to start uh, an academic fellowship where you have someone come in, spend a couple of years where they can just take a break from what they're doing and just focus exclusively on writing a couple pieces strong enough to sort of launch them into the academic market. Um, so the, the problem is that right when they start doing that, the, uh, the academic market is for, for, for law professors is sort of at its absolute bottom. Um, so it's an extremely difficult time. So we actually, that I think we're going to revive that, but it's currently on hold just because it's, it's, it's tough to ask of somebody to, Hey, come, been two years of your life with us and we can't really guarantee that you really will get a job afterwards so we're actually focusing more on policy uh fellowships lately i think we had nine fellows passed through last year i had like i think six farmed animal law and policy fellows we had a constitution comparative constitutional animal law fellow um and some others we had a, another one into work exclusively on this large report um pointing out all the unintended consequences or ancillary impacts of the king amendment that ended up being really impactful um, because there's all these folks who just hear the surface of it. And, you know, there are already groups out there making all the animal protection arguments. We just thought we would dig up a bunch of others that most legislators might not be aware of. Like, okay, that means you can't, you know, it might affect the, the, the age at which someone buys cigarettes or you can no longer prevent, because uh, the, the definition of agricultural product is so broad in that, in that proposed legislation that it can include everything from the glue and sneakers to like emerald ash borers or other invasive pests or, you know, you know, 
drugs that are being made. And it also covers anything made, quote unquote, on a farm, which could include just about anything under the sun. So literally. So, yeah. And that was really. But doing that, that project really whet our appetite to get more deeply involved in policy stuff. And it was a really great sort of home run right out of the gate. So our next big push is to try and uh, get a clinic launched, um, hoping to do that next year that will have some probably some litigation but really focus on like bigger policy initiatives like that and also have a, a big international component. So just when you talk about just tell me a little bit more about that. When you talk about a policy uh push, what do you mean exactly? Like writing policy papers or engaging directly with government or what do you mean? I think maybe both. I think starting with the former where um like right now, so we uh held that round table on the uh cellular agriculture regulatory issues. Um we then partnered with the uh, Food Law and Policy Clinic to do a, a joint letter to the FDA because they're accepting, taking public comment. Um, and I think we may have a, potentially have a larger white paper that comes out of that where we can sort of say, you know, hey, we thought very deeply about this and here's what our recommendations are. And then as we saw with the, uh, the King Amendment report, then animal advocates can go out and take that and use it as they wish. So they can be the ones to go out and sort of like weaponize that, if you will. So, you know, they were going all over the hill saying, well, you know, here's what Harvard Law School thinks. You know, here's what they've done. This is a completely independent objective report that just, it's not even advocacy. It just lists all these, you know, I think we had 240 pages of like over 3,000, 3,200 different laws that potentially could be nullified under the King Amendment that people had just had no idea about. So some of that, and, I, and we may cross over into you know, making more solid recommendations, which I think will happen with the, the clean meat stuff. But, you know, we, again, we've just got to, it's a, it's a really good platform from which to sort of help push policy in the right direction, I think. All right. Last question. You mentioned uh, an international component. So my self-interested ears perked up. What are you talking about with that? Well, uh, so Kristen really, uh, uh, Kristen still, in addition to uh, being the faculty director for the Animal Law Policy Program, is also the faculty director for the uh, Islamic Legal Studies program, Law and Social Change. Um, and so she's got a person who plays a similar role to mine, um, but is also like 50% with her and 50% with the Human Rights Program. And the Human Rights Clinic has a really good uh, element to what they do where they will take sort of public interest groups in, in other countries, like human rights groups, and just really help them with basic core competency stuff, like sort of help them get you know, incorporated or, and help them just like can do do things that they need to do and they may not have those sort of resources to help out in their own countries. Um, so Kristen would really love to apply that same idea to what we're doing and her background. Um, so Kristen got her PhD from Harvard in like Middle Eastern studies stuff. And she started working really closely. She did her PhD research in Cairo. And so she worked, started working really closely with some animal protection groups and sheltering groups there. And, uh, and just saw there's like a real need for that. And so and some of her writing, her latest writing, she's writing a book uh, um, called uh, uh, Halal Animals. It's going to be put out in Oxford University Press. And it's sort of with a foot in both camps, really looking deeply at, you know, sort of religious slaughter and, and other issues related to that. And sort of like how sort of animals are considered to the, in the in in Muslim majority countries and things like that. It could be, it's again, could be a really impactful book. Um, and she's already like traveled all over the world, visited slaughterhouses in Jordan and Australia and all over the place and really trying to educate herself as much as possible. And, and so that could have a pretty broad international impact. But yeah, I mean, we've already had um, given assistance because people reach out to us. Again, the Harvard name is pretty, pretty broad reach. So we've had folks in Iran are trying to pass Iran's first ever animal protection law, like literally starting from the ground up. 
Um, we had some other folks in Qatar that were having trouble getting recognized as an official nonprofit, um, which would then give them all this other access. So we were able to help hook them up with some pro bono attorneys over here that could help them kind of gain that status and yeah, more things like that. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Chris. Really, uh, really, really wish you all the best with this incredible program. I really appreciate it, Peter. Thanks so much. Cheers. Heroes and Zeros. All right. Welcome back. Time for everybody's favorite part of the show. It is time for Heroes and Zeros. And we have two good ones, Camille. I mean, we always have good ones, but sometimes we struggle a little bit. I, I thought these were some really good heroes because they heroes and zeros, because both the hero and the zero, in addition to receiving recognition in their own right, I think tell us a little something larger about some issues involving animals. So you want to start us off with the hero this week, Camille? Sure. So we're looking at uh, an article from Kamloops describing a, a lawsuit that a man in that city has filed in the case of his dog's death. So his dog was uh, out with him. They were driving around. He let the dog out for a little break. And uh, unfortunately, his dog, Kuma, kind of left the the pickup truck for a few minutes, went a few meters in, uh, away, and then he noticed Kuma making a funny noise in the ditch, and he realized that her neck was caught in, sorry, his neck was caught in a trap. So obviously he tries to remove the trap as quickly as he could, but those traps are like metal clamps that just clamp down. It's very, very difficult to to remove them if you don't know how to do that. And it really is just tragic, Peter. Kuma apparently died in his arms after a significant amount of suffering several minutes later in a panicked situation. Yeah, we should name our hero, by the way. It's Burke. I hope I pronounced the name correctly. Burke Nesjan. Yeah. Burke Nesjan. And and, and the reason for being the hero is that... We've talked about it in this, uh, this podcast many times before. It is not easy to get uh, litigation before the courts involving animal uses. It's just not. It's not easy. Um, there are a lot of impediments. I think uh, in a future episode, Camille, we've really got to dedicate a show to some of the challenges with civil litigation. Um, I mean, we talked about some of them a while back, if you remember, when we did our, our show on custody and about how judges tend to treat claims involving animals as not being worthy of the court's time. But um, Burke is uh, seeking more than $15,000 in compensation. So he's actually risking costs, awards, and all the rest by going to court and trying to get at least $10,000 for loss of companionship and mental suffering following the death of his animal, essentially uh, charging the trappers with negligence. Yeah, essentially. And in his claim, he states, I don't think that it is reasonable to set a powerful killing trap that requires special tools to open. At a well-defined pullout on a well-maintained, high public and industrial use mainline forest service road. So he's essentially saying that this trap is in the location where people might go, where dogs might go, where other animals might go. And it's a huge danger uh, to the public. And, you know, obviously we're not even discussing the, the issues in this case about the, the animals who are the intended targets of the trap who suffer horrifically just as Kuma did as well. But if you take uh, the sort of incrementalist approach, like we discussed with the lab animals issue previously, this idea that trappers have an unfettered right to put their traps wherever the heck they want and that people's pets should be made to suffer in them, I think is something that the public does not stand for. 
And I think the second part, which might not be so apparent, but I'm coping with in my own uh, litigation that I'm involved with, is the difficulty of construing damage awards where animals are involved, simply because the law has been hesitant to recognize that animals are anything more than their market value. And what Burke is trying to show, if he gets this case through, is that the loss of companionship and the mental suffering involved from his animal is, is something of value in itself. And I can tell you that even if you're listening to that, you may be thinking, you know, what about the animal's loss of life? Like, what about the animal itself? Uh, unfortunately, our legal system has not gone far enough to recognize uh, that these animals have intrinsic value that is recognized. Obviously, if a human dies, there are loss of values associated with that person's life. Um, but here, you know, just getting the law to recognize that mental suffering and loss of companionship are things that are worthy of being compensated continues to be somewhat of a struggle in the courts. That's right. So this has the potential to be a really interesting, potentially precedent-setting case, and we are going to be watching it very closely. Absolutely. All right, Peter, and for every hero, there's a zero. Our zero this month's warning, this is a really brutal case. Absolutely. Not a good one. And, uh, oh, how did... how? Did you do this on purpose, Camille? Are we back in Alberta for the zero again? I think I'm going to have to put on like, I'm going to have to put on a, like a hiatus where like we cannot name an Alberta zero for the next three episodes. How's that? Yeah, I guess we have to spread the love around to or the hate around <laughs> to the rest of the country, huh? Uh, well, at least it's not Edmonton, Camille. I'm happy about that. We are, our zero is for two boys from Grand Prairie who have not yet been named, but these two boys, you may have seen this story on the CBC, where they essentially beat a coyote to death. Um, it's absolutely horrific video. Um, it's it's essentially they're on a snowmobile and they take an animal. You can actually watch parts of the video um, in this. I mean, luckily enough, if you if you want to add luckily, they were stupid enough to videotape their own cruelty, uh, which means they're going to be subject to some sorts of sanctions uh, once this once this uh, investigation is complete. But essentially, they beat a coyote uh, to death. It's just uh, it's just terrible. I haven't been able to watch the video because I'm just I just know it's going to kill me if I do. So I'm not going to. But reading the description in the CBC article is bad enough. It just sounds like horrific cruelty and horrific suffering. So apparently, according to the article, the RCMP have this video now they're investigating. They believe they know who the perpetrators are. So I hope that they're able to pursue them. And. What's interesting about this, obviously depraved acts of cruelty like this are never acceptable, but it's also interesting to compare and contrast what this coyote went through with what coyotes go through in traps and who are hunted every day in this country for things like fur trim on Canada goose jackets. Uh, the way that they're killed when they're captured in leghold traps and the trapper comes back to get them, also not pretty. Not pretty at all. Sometimes their necks are stomped on, sometimes they are beat to death, sometimes they're shot to death. Uh, but you can single out this video as an act of, uh, you know, unnecessary cruelty that's not being done for any particular purpose except for sadism, so far as we can tell. But let's not forget that this has happened to millions of coyotes around Canada uh, every year. And where do those tales go, Camille? Where, oh where? Hmm, I wonder if I've seen a coyote tail recently around the streets of Edmonton. Any thoughts? I wonder if you have. Do you think maybe you've seen it on the trim of a Canada goose hood? But the Canada goose ones, Camille, from what I've read on their website, it are, are, are only treated in the most humane way possible. 
sarcasm alert. <laughs> no, actually, that's that's a factual assertion. <laughs> the sarcasm. Oh, you're right. Actually, that is that, that is, what is they exactly say. what they say. The sarcasm was just you know the unintended, the un the implied suggestion that comes after that. That that is actually true. That's the sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brutal stuff. And, uh, you know, we've talked about that as well in past episodes, the way in which we we, we legitimize uh, um, these sorts of things because of the end, right? The end. Well, we need the tail. So I guess we can do these sorts of things as opposed to these guys who are going to be, I would say, facing some time, Camille, but they're, 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 they're likely young offenders. So I, I don't think they're facing any time, even if they're captured. I hate to break it to everybody uh, when you see, and maybe. I shouldn't say that they're not going to, but if they are, if they are under the age of eighteen, um, usually takes some pretty significant offending to get up to uh, jail time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, it's interesting to me that, of course, our criminal law people are concerned much more, I think, with the animal cruelty provisions about the state of mind of the offender rather than what the animal actually endures. So you could commit the same act against an animal once in a trapping contest, uh, a context rather, and uh, once in a sort of sadistic context, the animal experiences the same thing, but the individuals are treated differently. So uh, that's what this case highlights to me. No question about it. All right, that is our Heroes and Zeros uh, for the uh, the podcast. And wow, Camille, is it possible? This I, I can't believe how frequently we've been able to say this this year. The next time I see my co-host Camille Labcheck, oops, I, I, you see, I just I spoiled it. I I I delivered the result. I should say the next time I'm speaking with my uh, co-host Camille Labcheck, it will be in person for the Edmonton Holiday Party and the next. Uh, episode of Pawn Order will be one of those rare ones where we're sitting sitting in each other's company. I can't wait, Peter. Looking forward to it. Me too. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. That was a great episode. And don't forget, please, please, please to visit our sponsor, the Grinning Goat dot ca and uh, use the the code PAW15 for your special discount on any order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw & Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw & Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.